Good morning. If you will, open with me to the book of Habakkuk. And that is not in the white book. That's in the Bible. Uh, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk. Um, You can generally speaking go to Matthew, grab a little pinch of Bible paper, back left, and you've probably got the book. So I'll give you a second. I know that one's hard to find. You can probably, there is no shame in turning to the front in the index and finding the page number. It's, Habakkuk is one of the minor prophets. I think there, there are 10 to 12 minor prophets. I can't remember. Um, the number slips me right now. Um, but they're called minor prophets, not because they don't carry as much weight as the other prophets, but simply because they don't carry it for as long. In other words, these minor prophets carry the same authority, it's just their books are shorter. Uh, They just didn't write as much. And so Habakkuk is one of these minor prophets. Well, what I want to do today is give just a brief, very high-level overview of the book of Habakkuk. Uh, And don't let that scare you. There are only 56 verses in Habakkuk. Uh, There are several chapters in John that have 50 or more verses. So there are whole chapters in the Bible that have more verses than Habakkuk has in this whole book. It's a short book, a very short book. And like I said, I I just want to give a very high-level overview of what the flow of this book is and what is going on between God and this prophet. And I think that's a very helpful way to approach the Bible, and especially the Old Testament. You try and get a feel for what's going on kind of in the general flow before you start getting down in the particulars and trying to work things out. Uh, I used to like flying over for Birmingham in that way. When you're in Birmingham and you're down in the streets, I don't know if you've probably driven in major cities, um, St. Louis, Kansas City, things like that. It's hopelessly difficult to navigate when you're down there on the street level. But if you ever get up above it in a plane or a helicopter or something like that, you look down and it looks just like a perfect grid. It's like the whole thing looks like, this. okay, this makes sense. These pieces actually fit together and you can get out of that corner that I was stuck in. And so it, it's just helpful to get a high level, uh, level overview sometimes. That's a helpful approach Um, to scripture if you get down into verses in the bible you just don't understand one of the best things you can do is back up one chapter read all the way through and keep going one chapter and generally speaking you'll have a better feel for what's going on because there's a progression there's this story that's happening and so that's what i want to do today let me give just a little bit of historical background for kind of where habakkuk is situated in history and in the bible you know, after King Solomon came on the scene, he was king, and then his kingdom, um, when he was finished being king, it split, the kingdom of God split into two sections. There were the northern kingdom, often known as Israel, and there was the southern kingdom, often known as Judah. Well, the northern kingdom, it only took about a couple hundred years before they were put into exile by Assyria. Um, through the Assyrians, uh, they got started off on the bat on the wrong foot. They got started off in the wrong direction, and as a just matter of history, they never recovered. Idolatry was rampant, and they were exiled through Assyria around 722. Well, Judah fared a little better, a little better, 
And they would have these high points and these low points. Well, there was one particularly low point where the nation just looked totally apostate. And then this king named Josiah came on the scene. He took the throne and a revival broke out under his reign. It was very encouraging. Um, Baal was stripped down, all these altars. The high places were torn down. People started worshiping the one true God. The book of the law was rediscovered. It was very encouraging. And there was this revival that breaks out. He reigned from 640 to about 605 B.C. But soon, the revival began to dwindle and Judah took an absolute nosedive back into apostasy, back into total backsliding. And it's in, that, it's in that setting, it's in that historical situation of Judah coming off of this revival with Josiah and then nosediving into apostasy that Habakkuk is, uh, that's the historical setting of this prophecy and what's going on in the heart of this prophet as he dialogues back and forth between him and the Lord. Regarding Habakkuk himself, we don't know anything about him except what's in this book. Um, he's not talked about in any of the other books of the Bible. There's one apocryphal book, which is a pseudo-type book. It's, a, it's just a, a kind of a, a historical book that may not be as historically, uh, historically reliable as what we have in the Bible. And um, most people think that it's totally unhistorically reliable. They do share one story that Habakkuk had to do something with Daniel when he was in the lion's den. But everyone I've read doesn't believe it's true. They believe it's just kind of fictional type something that was tried to throw together into a true historical situation. So basically, we know nothing about him aside from what we have in this book. And he shares basically nothing about himself. Because he's not concerned about himself. He's intensely concerned about this backslidden nation of Judah and whether or not God's going to do anything about it. So that's a little bit of the historical um, situation. What about how the book of Habakkuk as a whole is set up? Well, I think Habakkuk is probably one of the most clearly and orderly arranged books in all of the Bible. The flow is very, very clear. Habakkuk raises two complaints. God gives two replies. Habakkuk writes a psalm. That's it. Habakkuk complains. God replies. Habakkuk complains. God replies. Habakkuk writes a psalm. The book's done. So the the arrangement of the book is very straightforward. It's just this dialogue between this prophet and the Lord about what's going on in this situation. And then it culminates in this psalm that he writes, which is a psalm where he's recounting history and he just totally surrenders to God in the whole thing. So that's a little kind of background historical information and kind of a, a broad flow of how this book is set up. So what I want to do is just read some, um, read some of this book and give just a, a very high-level overview. We'll read chunks of it. We're not going to read the total thing. But I want to read enough that you get a feel for the struggle that's going on between this prophet and God and the way that that will apply to us. And that's how I want to end is just give four brief points of application about what we learn from this prophet. So if you are in chapter 1, if you found it, we'll start in verse 1 and we'll read to verse 4, which is the first complaint. The oracle which Habakkuk the prophet saw. 
How long, O Lord, will I call for help and you, knew, and you not hear? I cry to you violence, yet you do not save. Why do you make me see iniquity and cause me to look on wickedness? Yes, destruction and violence are before me. Strife exists and contention arises. Therefore, the law is ignored and justice is never upheld. For the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore, justice comes out perverted. And you can hear Habakkuk's basic complaint. God, you seem indifferent to this situation. Lord, you're not doing anything. All of this injustice within Judah is just rampant. And God, you're sitting idly by. Injustice just keeps growing and growing and growing. And therefore, nobody even cares about the law anymore. Everybody thinks that's old and it no longer has any bearing on our life because you seem indifferent. That's Habakkuk's basic problem. But God responds. And God's basic response in 1, 5 through 11 is this. I'm not indifferent to this situation. I'm not indifferent. I have a plan. Listen to this, starting in verse 5. Look among the nations. Observe. Be astonished. Wonder. Because I am doing something in your days you would not believe if you were told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans. Now just footnote right there, those are the Babylonians. Assyria was the superpower before Babylonia came on the scene. And then the Persians, Babylonians right in the middle, um, probably had not come to just full power yet. But God's saying, I'm going to raise up these Babylonians to deal with this situation. And here's what he says. That fierce and impetuous people who march throughout the earth to seize dwelling places which are not theirs. They are dreaded and feared. Their justice and authority originate within themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards and keener than wolves in the evening. Their horsemen come galloping. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swooping down to devour. All of them come for violence. Their horde of faces move forward. They collect captives like sand. They mock at kings and rulers are a laughing matter to them. They laugh at every fortress and heap up rubble to capture it. Then they will sweep through like the wind and pass on. But they will be held guilty. They whose strength is their God. So God comes to Habakkuk and says, I am responding to this situation. I'm not indifferent to what is going on in these circumstances. I have a plan. I'm going to raise up the Babylonians to judge the sin of Judah. Well... Now Habakkuk has a real problem on his hands. Because first of all, he was troubled because God was indifferent. Now the problem has just gone from bad to worse. Because God is about to use an, a, a nation more unrighteous than Judah to judge the people in that land. So the question becomes this, God... You're holy. You're righteous. How can you do this? How can you remain just and holy and use this nation that's so more unjust than ourselves? Listen to what he says. This is what Habakkuk says. He says, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We will not die. You, O Lord, have appointed them to judge, and you, O rock, have established them to correct. Your eyes are too pure to approve evil, and you cannot look on wickedness for favor. Why do you look with favor on those who deal treacherously? 
Why are you silent when the wicked swallow up those more righteous than they? Why have you made men like fish of the sea, like creeping things without a ruler over them? The Chaldeans bring all of them with a hook, drag them away with their net, and gather them together in their fishing net. Therefore, they rejoice and are glad, and burn incense to their fishing net, because through these things their catch is large, large and their food is plentiful. Will they therefore empty their net and continually slay the nations without sparing I will stand on my guard posts and station myself on the rampart and I will keep watch to see what he will speak to me and how I may reply when I am reproved. You see what Habakkuk saying here, Lord, first it seemed like you were indifferent. Then you said, I'm, I'm not indifferent. I'm going to judge this nation. But how can you do this, Lord? This doesn't make any sense. How can you use a nation as unrighteous as this one? And so what Habakkuk does, he starts rolling through the attributes of God. He says, Lord, I know you're holy. You're the holy one whose eyes are too pure to approve evil. Lord, I know you're from everlasting. You're not like those Babylonians whose God is their own strength. You're just going to fail away. Lord, you are everlasting. I know you're a rock. All of your ways are certain. Your foundation is final. Your purposes are firm. I know you are righteous. You are in keeping with your own standard. Lord, this just doesn't make any sense. Just doesn't make any sense. And he's rolling through the attributes of God trying to figure this whole situation out. And so... What he finally does is something very, very, very wise. He shuts his mouth and he waits on the Lord. He shuts his mouth and he just waits on the Lord. Lord, this situation makes no sense whatsoever. I know these certain things about you. So I'm just going to sit here on this spiritual tower and I'm just going to wait and see what you have to say. I'm just shut up to you, Lord. You just speak and please help me with this. And God replied, God replied, and God's basic response was this. He says, I want you to write something down. I want you to go ahead and write this down because that's how certain what I'm about to tell you is. So just write it down on stone tablets. And the basic message is this. All of my ways are right and I will be vindicated in the end. You may not understand what I'm doing right now, but there is going to come a day when people look back on history, all of history. It may not be tomorrow, it may not be next week, but there will come a day when history is unfolded and you will see that the God of the, all the earth did right. He did right. And not only did He do right, but He fought for His people. He fought for his people. Listen to just a few of these verses. Then the Lord answered me and said, Record the vision and inscribe it on tablets that the one who reads it may run. For the vision is yet for an appointed time. It hastens towards the goal. It will not fail. Though it tarries, wait for it, for it will certainly come. It will not delay. Behold, as for the proud one, those Babylonians, and anyone that stands against the purposes of God, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous will live by his faith. Furthermore, wine betrays the haughty man so that he does not stay at home. He starts drinking wine. 
He gets drunk. Now he thinks he's bulletproof. Now he thinks he's going to go out and conquer the world without reverence for God or his people. Wine betrays him. He enlarges his appetite like Sheol, and he is like death, never satisfied. He always gathers to himself all nations, also gathers to himself all nations, and collects to himself all peoples. Will not all of these, all these people that you're conquering without reverence for God or his people, you're just cruel, you're using hooks to put through their nose to lead them out when they're captives just to shame them? Will not all of these take up a taunt song against him, even mockery and insinuations against him, and say, Woe to him who increases what is not his. For how long and makes himself rich with loans? Will not your creditors suddenly arise and those who collect from you awaken? Indeed, you will become plunder for them. And he goes on and he keeps on pronouncing these woes. So God comes to Habakkuk and says, Your your, any faith in me is not misplaced. I am going to deal with this situation. I am going to deal with this situation. It may not be tomorrow or the next day when you can see it clearly, but it will come. And there are two sides in this circumstance. There are the arrogant whose heart is not right within them, and then there are going to be the people that trust me through the whole thing. The righteous will live by their faith. And those people will never ever be disappointed. It is not the Chaldeans, verse 14, whose glory is going to cover the earth. They're not just going to go unchecked through this world and injustice forever be rampant and this situation never going to be dealt with. No, the Babylonians' glory sank like a rock in history. And yet, a couple of thousand years here later, God's glory still marches on. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Hope in God is never misplaced. He's not indifferent. He's dealing with this situation totally unlike anything Habakkuk could have ever imagined. It seemed like a step in the opposite direction. But God says, no, it's going to take some time. But when history's done... At least when history's done, you're going to see it and everyone is going to say, the God of all the earth did right. He did right. He did right. And so, what does Habakkuk do facing these trials that are coming? Well, he sits down and he writes a psalm. Is that what you would have done? Babylonians are about to invade Judah, these wicked, wicked, cruel people. Habakkuk, he asked God, God answered. He asked again, God answered again. He had been stationed on his rampart. Lord, I'm ready to hear what you have to say about this situation. God speaks. God speaks. And so Habakkuk begins to compose this psalm. And what he does is he asks God for revival. Lord, Please send revival, not judgment. Please send revival, not judgment. And then he begins to recount God's mighty acts in history. Listen to this in chapter 3. Again, we'll just read a few verses here. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet, according to the Shigianoth. Lord, I have heard the report about you, and I fear 
Oh Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God comes from Teman and his holy one from Paran. His splendor covers the heavens and the earth is full of his praise. His radiance is like the sunlight. He has rays flashing from his hand and there is the hiding place of his power. Before him goes pestilence and the plague comes after him. He stood and surveyed the earth. He looked and startled the nations. Yes, the perpetual mountains were shattered. The ancient hills collapsed. His ways are everlasting. I saw the tents of Cushan under distress. The tent curtains of the land of Midian were trembling. In very highly symbolic, emotionally charged language, Habakkuk sits down in the midst of this storm and he writes this psalm. And what he's describing are imagery related to the giving of the law and the exodus and when God came through like a mighty warrior in the conquest and nation after nation he triumphed over through Israel when he won the victory here are these people in these impossible circumstances and God breaks them out of this superpower and then they march through places like Jericho and walls are falling down Walls are falling down. So what Habakkuk does, he prays for a revival, and then he just starts marching through history, reminding himself about what God had done. And then when he gets finished, and he's finished reminding himself in history, he surrenders. He surrenders to the whole thing. Listen to this. Verse 16. I have heard and my inward parts trembled. At the sound my lips quivered. Decay entered my bones. And in my place I tremble because I must wait quietly for the day of distress. For the people to arise who will invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom and there be no fruit on the vines. Though the yield of the olive should fail and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold, and there be no cattle in the stalls, yet I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength. He has made my feet like hinds feet, and He makes me walk on high places. For the choir director on stringed instruments. And that's Habakkuk. It's an overview of Habakkuk. It's quite a book, quite a book. And I have done no justice to it. It's just an amazing, amazing book. Now let me ask you a question. Do you ever find yourself in the book of Habakkuk? Do you ever find yourself confused because it seems like God is indifferent to what is going on in your life? Or what is going on in a circumstance. Lord, you've saved other people's children. I've been asking for years, and yet my children keep marching deeper in sin. Lord, I've been praying for a spouse for years, and yet there's no prospect in sight. I don't have any word from you on this. Lord, why is my child sick? Lord, why have I not found a better job so that we can be more established? 
Lord, why do you let a nation kill its babies just because they're an inconvenience? Lord, why do you let so many churches produce so much false hope and so many people that are just walking off for, in destruction? You've raised up people, you've raised up men of God, but it largely seems unchecked. And in these and a host of other situations, you can start to feel like God is indifferent. Well, let's take it a step further. You've been praying and waiting on God regarding a situation. And what He does or allows seems to be a step in the opposite direction. A couple prays for years and years that they might have a child. Finally, they get pregnant but miscarry. You've been praying for years and years that God would give you a spouse. And the person you hoped to marry was given to someone else. Or you've been looking to God for a raise so things won't be so tight, but the co-worker next to you that lacks basic integrity gets the raise or the promotion. Well, the car breaks down when you didn't have any money in the first place. And on and on it goes. It seems to be just be going from bad to worse, and you are already having enough trouble with bad. Do you ever find yourself standing alongside Habakkuk saying, Lord, What's going on here? Lord, I just, I don't understand what's going on here. Well, if you do, I think we can learn some things from this prophet about what it means to believe God when things just don't make sense. What does it mean? What does it look like to believe God when things just don't make sense? As I said briefly, I see four things here that Habakkuk did that, to keep his head above the water in this situation. Uh, the first two of these came from Martin Lloyd-Jones. I was, listen, I was actually listening to another guy preach, and he used them. And actually, he, I just heard him list them off. I didn't hear, hear how he expounded the points. But he said this was helpful, and I didn't know what else to do with it, but stick it in my outline. And so that's what I've done, because I think it's really helpful. Let me just list them to you and then we'll go through them and say a little bit about each one. Number one, you stop to think. Number two, you restate the basics. Number three, you revisit history. And number four, you unconditionally surrender. Number one, stop to think. What do you do when you're in these situations that just don't make any sense and it feels like the world is just crashing down on you and you're in the middle of the storm and you're just trying to get your bearings. You're just trying to find an anchor somewhere that you can hold on to. Well, the first thing that you need to do is to stop and think. One of the greatest temptations in the middle of a trial is to try and turn your mind off. Try and turn, because you're just so worn out by the thrashing of these circumstances around you. It feels like moving heaven and earth to apply your mind to it. Your mind has been engaged so long, you're just so tired. So tired. But you've got to stop and think. Christianity is a thinking religion. I know for myself, one of the main reasons I became a Christian is I was so worn out with trying to stop facing reality. I knew sin was on me. I knew it. I didn't even hardly have to read it in the Bible. I knew sin was on me. I knew I was a sinner headed for, headed for hell. And I'm trying to go to these parties, and I'm trying to turn up my music, and I'm trying to talk to all my friends 
just long enough to keep myself distracted from reality. And it's exhausting. It is absolutely exhausting. Christianity is coming to reality with both eyes open for the first time in your life and you face reality. That's why Paul talks so much about the mind. Peter says, gird up the loins of your mind. 1 Peter chapter 1, Paul, set your mind on the things of above. Think on the things that are true and right and noble. Be renewed in the spirit of your mind. The mind, the mind, the mind. He's constantly pumping truth into these Christians because Christians don't thrive when they turn their minds off. You thrive when you turn your minds on. Habakkuk, in this book, he's going through the attributes of God. He's not just getting blown along by this trial. He starts systematically working through what he knows about God. And then when the whole thing's over, after he's heard from God and he knows he's about to have to go through this trial, he sits down and composes a psalm. I mean, he doesn't sit down and just kind of freehand throw this thing together. He sits down and composes this psalm. He's using logic. He's using reason. He's using what he knows about history. He's using what he knows about God. He's thinking. You can't turn your mind off. The first thing you have to do is you stop to think. Number two, restate the basics. Restate the basics. Do you remember what Habakkuk started doing? Lord, I know you're the Holy One. He goes, he's going back to the basics of what he knows about God. I know you're the Holy One whose eyes are too pure to approve evil. I've nailed that down. Lord, I know you are righteous. Lord, I know you're a rock. You're not like, like these Babylonians or these other false gods that might change and they get disgruntled so they kind of change their personality this way and they're just kind of all over the board. That's not you, God. You're a rock. I know who you are and I know you're sovereign. You can do something about these situations. You yourself said you're the one raising up the Chaldeans. He's going back to the basics. Beloved, one of the worst things that you can do in a trial is when a trial comes along, you, re, you rip up everything that you know about God and you make it contingent upon figuring this thing out. You go, you're going through this trial. Does God love me? Does God care for me? And all of a sudden, everything you had nailed down in your Christian life of what you knew about God, you rip the whole thing up and you make it contingent on figuring out what God is doing and how the love of God might apply in this situation. So your theology is always out on the porch until you can get it figured out and you'll let it back inside the house. You can't do that. Never, ever give up the basics. Never, ever. Do you, have you nailed some things down about God? Have you nailed down the fact, God loves me. God loves me. God sent His Son to die for me. That's a stake in the ground. No matter what happens, I'm not giving that up. God is holy. God is sovereign. God is wise. God is good. Have you nailed those things down? One of the greatest things you might can do this afternoon is just go nail them down. Get verses, argue history, look at what God has done, and say, I'm going to nail down some things, and I am not going to question them anymore. God loves me, and He's wise, and He's good, and He's sovereign. There is a place for revisiting your theology, possibly being corrected, but it's not in regards to the basics. Not in regards to the basics. You remember a story from a brother who 
came here. He makes trips overseas to a closed country, and he shared a story when he was actually in the States about how he was racked with pain, and every joint in his body was just aching. The doctors couldn't figure it out, but it didn't keep him from going out witnessing. So he's still out, he's still out going door to door with his body just totally racked with pain. And he goes inside this person's home, and the person notices two things. Number one, this guy is just racked with pain. And number two, he still has joy. And so finally, after he gets done sharing, the person asks him a question. He says, just tell me why. Why would God allow someone so devoted to him to experience so much pain? Why would God let this happen to one of his followers? And do you remember his response? I have learned not to ask questions which presuppose things about my heavenly father that I know cannot be true. I've nailed that one down. God loves me. And I'm unwilling to go revisit that foundation. No matter how difficult this situation gets, I'm not going there. God loves me. That's what we're talking about. Restate the basics. What do you know about God? What do you know about God? Number three, revisit history. The book of Habakkuk Psalm is a survey of salvation. And man, if you read the Psalms, you read the prophets, they're constantly going over history because they're constantly in a mess. The nation's constantly doing something. There's constantly, uh, you know, these people that are coming after them, especially during the conquest, and then as the nation starts apostatizing, and they're going up and down and up and down, and they're getting in these predicaments. What did the psalmist and the prophets always do? What they would do when they got into a mess, they would sit down and say, all right, somebody start, somebody start going over what God's done. And they would start either with Abraham or the Exodus. All right, we were in a mess. We were trapped in Egypt, utterly hopeless. And what did God do? God bore his arm and he ripped us out of that nation and then judged them and drowned them in the sea. What happened then? We kept going and we would find ourselves surrounded in these situations. We come up to Jericho. This is impossible. We can't do anything here. The walls fall down by people blowing trumpets. And they're marching on in victory after victory after victory in Israel's life. They would just start recounting it until they felt the warmth start to come back. That's what you've got to do. You've got to revisit history. What has God done? What is the history of redemption? All the way back from Abraham, you can go all the way back to Genesis 3.15 where there's this promise that God is going to, that, that the seed of the woman is going to come and crush the head of the serpent. And you can watch that whole thing get worked all the way out until the Lord Jesus Christ come and crushes the head of the serpent. You can see this victory throughout redemptive history, but it's not just that. It's victories you've already seen in your own life. Every new trial we face, one of the first things to go out the window is all that God has done for you so far. It's one of the first things that goes out the window. And this is why I love to get older saints talking about their pilgrimage. Talking about the things that God has done. I just, I just love it. And even though you've heard the story a thousand times... They've told the story a thousand times when they get to the part where God breaks into history. You can see their eyes fill up with tears. Their eyes fill up with tears. Yeah, he won that battle. 
He did. And let me tell you, let me tell you about this other one. When we were so broke, we had no idea what we were going to do. And then this check came in out of nowhere. And this check, it just came out of nowhere. And let me tell you this other time where our kids, our, our child was just gone astray and we thought all was lost. And then somebody handed them a track in another city and they were saved. And you just hear them, they just start recounting what God has done in history. And pretty soon you see this warmth starting to flow back into them. You see their eyes start filling up with tears. Because why? Every Christian in this room could probably spend most of the afternoon just going through how God has saved the day time after time in your life. That's just reality. Reality. So you revisit history. Finally, you unconditionally surrender. Unconditionally surrender. God, no matter what comes, no matter what happens, if there's cattle in the stall, there's not cattle in the stall. Food comes in, food does not come in. I will praise the Lord. Ryan Fullerton was talking to some of us about his wife, Christy, and her fight with cancer. And she really had a rough time with it in the beginning. A really, really rough time. And really struggling with why would God let this happen. But there came a crossroads in her life one morning when she surrendered. And she decided, you know what? There's a lot I don't understand. But whether I live or I die... I will praise the Lord. And she walked into the other room. Someone else happened to be there. She said, how are you doing, Chris? She said, I am praising God. I am praising God. She wasn't trying to praise God. She was praising God. There's a difference. And here's another really, really, really big thing. Full surrender does not mean I'm not still shaking like a leaf and possibly crying my eyes out. Look at Habakkuk. He's quaking. He says, I am trembling. I am so full of fear. I am trembling. But that doesn't mean he's not surrendered. That doesn't mean he's not surrendered. Sometimes God saves the day. My son Charlie, a couple of years ago, I just see you start going back all these stories. A couple of years ago, the very last hour, God saves him from this 11-hour surgery that is just an absolute atrocity. You wonder if the surgery is worse than the disease. I mean, it was just such a brutal type surgery. Three days before the thing, it's just totally gone. It's just gone. God just delivered him. But I know of other parents that God hasn't done that. And at the very last hour, God didn't do anything. God didn't do anything. And I've seen the tears and I've seen the heartache, but I've also seen them come out on the other side and say, I will praise the Lord. I will praise the Lord. No matter what happens, I will praise the Lord. I choose to do it. It's full, unconditional surrender, tears in their eyes, handshaking confession. God, I don't care what comes my way. If these circumstances head south, I will Praise God. So in closing, just to summarize what we said, how do you believe God in circumstances that just don't make sense? And you, you don't know which way they're going to go. Number one, stop to think. 
Number two, restate the basics. What do you know about God? Nail it down. Don't question it anymore. There's a place for, for revisiting some things, but the basics, nail it down. Number three, revisit history. What has God done in redemptive history? What has God done in your own life? What has God done in the lives of those around you and the saints through the ages? Start preaching that to yourself. And number four, unconditionally surrender. Surrender. Well, let's pray. Father, we want to be able to read with reality this last portion of Habakkuk when he says, Lord, no matter what happens, no matter what happens, I will praise the Lord. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us. I pray you would teach us about yourself. I pray you'd bring that to mind in trials. I pray you would bring to mind victories you've won throughout history. And we just want to pray with that song, keep us, Lord, oh, keep us cleaving to yourself and still believing. In Jesus' name, amen.